The following podcast is brought to you by iSelect Fund. iSelect is dedicated to helping investors create a diversified portfolio of venture investments through their financial advisors. Learn how to start your own venture portfolio today by visiting iSelectFund.com. Todd Mockler is one of the world's leading experts on plant genetics and has dedicated his career to better understanding how the genetic code of different types of plants impacts their behavior and responses. As a member and principal investigator with the Danforth Plant Science Center in St. Louis, his research has focused on the development of plant genomic tools with the end goal of improving crop performance and yield. On this episode of Innovation Anarchy, Dr. Mockler will discuss his career in plant biology his work as an ag tech entrepreneur, and how Benson Hill Biosystems, the startup company where he is currently chief technology officer, is working to unlock the genetic code of plants in order to improve yields, boost crop performance, and help feed the world. So as we've talked before on previous podcasts, the agricultural industry is going through a huge sea change in the United States and around the world. The United Nations uh, expects that we need to, over the next 35 years, produce a lot more food to feed the world as it continues to grow, both because of the growing population and because of growing economies. This is putting a big challenge on farmers who have to grow more while there are challenges in the climate, uh, eroding soils, limitations on natural resources. So there's an urgent need to redefine the model of innovation in the ag industry uh, in order to significantly improve crop performance and meet the demands. As it stands today, most biology-based innovation agriculture happens in the R&D departments of major corporations like a Monsanto, which has the resources to reach and dedicate years of research and teams and experts to solve these big world-changing problems. But this limitation is not sustainable and is no longer necessary. Recent computational and biological advances have opened up a new era of innovation to address these global challenges with sustainable agricultural solutions, allowing smart startups to enter the space as never before. Dr. Todd Mockler is one of the ag experts leading this transition. As Chief Technology Officer of Benson Hill, Principal Investigator with the Danforth Center, and a longtime professor of biology, Todd is at the forefront of plant genomics, using the tools of genetic analysis to boost crop yield, improve agricultural output, and redefine how ag innovation is done. So with that as an intro, Todd, welcome. Thank you, Carter. Thank you for the nice introduction. Um, That's a really long list of stuff. Um, What does being a chief technology officer at Benson Hill, principal investigator Danforth, and Long time in professor of biology. What do you what do you do right now? All right. Well, I have uh, I think the best job in the world. I'm fortunate to be a faculty member, also called the principal investigator at the Danforth Plant Science Center here in St. Louis. Uh, at at the Danforth, I run a large research group, about 20 people. We're working on various problems in plant biology that I'm interested in, like how plants deal with environmental challenges, like stresses, like cold, heat. Um, salt stress, for example. Um, But fortunately at the Danforth, uh, as a faculty member there, I can spend 20% of my time doing other things. And those other things are not defined, Um, but they include being, uh, spending that 20% of my time being an entrepreneur. And so I've taken advantage of that and uh, had the good fortune to meet the right people, to 
uh, help co-found companies like uh, Benson Hill Biosystems, for example, where I'm CTO, as you mentioned. Um, as a co-founder of Benson Hill, I brought in uh, uh, some technologies that are essentially spin-out technologies from my lab at the uh, Danforth Center and uh, helped shape the science that underlies uh, Benson Hill's technology platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's I think that that's what it, it involves is you know in, in the it's a, have it pro- providing a, some scientific guidance and leadership pointing the direction, saying okay like this is an interesting area let's tackle it, and these are the tools we can marshal to to achieve those goals. Um, so the the Danforth Center was founded like 12, 15 years About ago. Fifteen years roughly. ago. Um, yeah. and so you're run one of the three principal labs. Is that right or what, how many how many um, people are they like about, you at the lab? There's about 20. There are 20 people who have teams well, of yes, 20? right. So you and, can think of the Danforth is comparable to a, you know, pretty large or modestly sized uh, um, biology department at a university, for example. And um, it is now a leading or the leading institution in plant by, biology? Yeah, by some metrics. You know, the Danforth, it's, it's the world's largest independent nonprofit plant science institute. And so, and it, I would think that in and of itself would consume all of your time, but you have the capability to start other businesses, even though they yeah. allow you to do it. I just can't imagine that well, the depth of challenge of both starting businesses and running a lab like it, that. Yeah, it can be challenging, but it's the, the fun part that's motivating. You know, the, well, the challenge and the, motiv- uh, uh, the fun is uh, motivating. The of course, I love the research we do at the Danforth. And, you know, my, the research in my lab is very kind of like basic research oriented. But, you know, we're never going to put a product to market. You know, just like, you know, most biology professors are never going to make a drug and sell mm-hmm. it to people, right? And it's the same with plant science. And so I, I like that aspect of um, the applied aspect or seeing a technology through from the inception on the R&D side and, you know, maybe in an academic research setting through to it affecting the marketplace. And that's kind of, I see that it's like a release of that kind of desire and energy by being able to take some of uh, my effort and achieve so, the, or take uh, tackle those problems. So based on my experience, both working in R&D at a place like Boeing mm-hmm. and then working with institutions over time, it's not common that somebody would be a principal investigator and an entrepreneur. They're almost counterindicated. In some ways, uh, that's true, and it's it's yeah, it's it's pretty rare. Often, people on the academic side just aren't interested, you know, I, uh, for whatever reason, you know, maybe just total uh, focus, absolute focus on their research and their their research group, their lab, um, the questions they're interested in. That's one thing. I mean, some people just aren't interested in business, right? There's there's a lot of reasons, and uh, somehow I just have this personality where I want to be able to do the basic science but then have a hand in the on the applied side and having the 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 good fortune to be able to play on that side because of my position at Danforth is you know it's the perfect fit for me so I've been excited about doing this interview for some time because it's it's that unique quality of your ability to both be a respected and successful principal investigator in an academic setting and also uh, father or father to several key startups 
that are leading the way in the commercialization of these technologies. And so, you know, often we have an iPhone and it breaks and we just go buy a new one, but, but somebody needs to know how to fix it. And there's a certain point, there's a certain amount of people would, when, you know, three or four people sat down and said, we know how to go to the moon and figured it out and led a whole team to yield that success. In many successful things in life, there are a few key people that really were the intersection of incredibly good in their field and also effective as entrepreneurs. And so I'm really intrigued to understand how you got, what led you to this point in time. So let's like roll the clock back. Sure. Like, I don't know, like when you were 12 or Six. Yeah. I mean, we six. Could, did you wake up and say, roll it back. "I want to be a plant <laughs> biologist"? Or what? No. You know, help help us no. understand. Help everybody understand yeah. what the, the okay. sort of sequence was. Sure, uh, uh, it's it's long, and I could go on and on, but I'll try to keep it brief. It really starts like forty years ago. I remember when I was a kid. I was, I'm guessing, I was like about six, and my my father gave, brought home this book he gave me. It was a book, something about science. You know, like child level science. And I just fell in love with it, read it. And I started, you know, thinking, I'm, I'm going to be a scientist. Pretty much, you know, my entire life, even though I've dabbled in all kinds of different areas, I was always on the trajectory to be a scientist. Um, I didn't know what that meant. I, I went through phases interested in, like, you know, astronomy and other aspects of science, um, biomedical, the biomedical side. Um, but ultimately, I landed on, on plant science. Um, but uh, along the way, um, let's see what it looked like is uh, – going to college uh, so I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut and I dabbled in a bunch of majors finally settled on a, uh, in the bi- in biology so I have degrees in biology and molecular biology and biochemistry um, that led to uh, my first job in biotechnology so I worked for a startup called uh, Target Tech which was in Connecticut that company was working on the biomedical side so I was working on gene therapy for human medicine and so at that time, I really was on a trajectory to do something on the biomedical side. Um, went to uh, uh, that with a company. Um, so uh, Target Tech was acquired by a company in San Diego called uh, Response Corporation. That company offered to move me. You know, I was like a 25-year-old kid or whatever, uh, maybe 24. Uh, and they offered to move me to San Diego. And I was like, you're going to pay me to move to San Diego? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I'll be there tomorrow. And, uh, and I worked there for a few years. Um, again, I'm working on, in uh, the biomedical space on gene therapy. And it became clear to me at that time that if I really wanted to achieve my goals, uh, I, I had to get an advanced degree. And uh, so I started thinking about that, thinking about getting a PhD, something in the biomedical space. I knew I was very interested in, this was before genomes were being sequenced, um, but uh, I was very interested in like genomic medicine. And I, I remember writing an essay for like an entrance essay for grad school. And then I had one of my colleagues at work you know, uh, edit it. And, and he said something like, you know, you, you keep saying this genomic medicine. Like, well, you know, what is that? Like, it's meaningless. And it wasn't to me. I mean, I thought I was like, this is the direction we're going. Um, but eventually, in, when I got to grad school, I, uh, through just kind of happenstance, met a, a new faculty member in the plant science side. He invited me to work in his lab. And 
it was uh, it was interesting to me. You know, I was aware of some of the advances coming up and you know, on the plant side. Like so, for example, like the, this is like when the first GM crops were being uh, starting to be commercialized, and I was aware. So this of that. time frame. Um, this is late nineties. Okay. Um, uh, like ninety seven, ninety eight. So human um, genome was not fully not fully unraveled. sequenced. Uh, the first plant genome wasn't even sequenced yet. Um, but you know the GM GM crops were just being commercialized. And yeah, I'll give an example. Like at that time, I remember my first year of grad school. Outside of one of the labs, there was like a public bulletin board, and I had cut an article out of Investors Business Daily that was about um, oh now I can't remember the name of the company Delta Pine and Land. The, so it was a, uh, a cotton. I think it was a cotton seed. GM cottonseed company that Monsanto had acquired and I and I put it up on the board and some professor like tore it down and said to me uh, you know like that around here this is not going to be you know favored or you know received well it was uh, it was an interesting did any of your colleagues (laughs) read investor business daily I was probably the only one (laughs) there was a couple of others uh, um so anyhow that's how I I got on this path of plant science and and uh, you know I just I was, is a lot of it's being at the right time, the right place. You know, I happened to be finishing my PhD right when genome sequencing just was exploding. And I knew that I wanted to go in that direction, and that's shaped most of my research career ever since. Um, on the entrepreneurial side, uh, you know, all along what I just described, that was, those were my day jobs, you know, like working at the biotech companies, working uh, um, in grad school, for example. Um, but all along, I was dabbling on the entrepreneurial side. So, for example, uh, um, well, when I was in high school and in college, my brother and I basically ran a auto detailing shop for for the owners. Um, contemplated actually. Does that help you keep the beakers clean? And uh, or is it good about it? <laughs> no, it makes me fanatical about keeping my car clean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and that you know, I, then I I, I contemplated taking on that business but you know fortunately I didn't um, and then in grad school my friends and I started a series of uh, basically web-based companies and again this was at the time where this was like the internet boom time yeah. and uh, so it started 95-ish nine, yeah n- well 90, 96 to 2002, 96 2000. You know, okay. of course the oh, cra- grad school the yes. crash was around 2000 and uh, um, so there was a, a sports-focused website that company that that we built that was actually profitable and it was great and we ended up winding it down just because all of the principals were like moving on with their careers. You know, mm-hmm. we we're all in grad school. Um, uh, my first genomics company um, called Cyber Genomics at that time. I uh, I became really passionate about gene synthesis and uh, started a, a company, ill-fated company called Combigenics. Um, so those were all uh, gene you know, synthesis, synthesis yeah. and auto detailing are not yeah, normally <laughs> in the same resume. Exactly, uh, but you know these are I have varied interests. So these things were interesting at the time and, and or potentially profitable or you know cool technologically. Um, but uh, then I had a bit of a lull, you know. So when I was uh, after getting my PhD, I did a postdoc at the Salk Institute, and I, I tried really hard to focus on my science then because I really wanted to set up my career, you know, as a. Uh, in a so there's a certain position. point where you really have to pay Buckle the dues down. and yeah. dig in yeah, and exactly. really know the market, yeah. or really know, rather know, know, know the, the science. Know the science, publish. You know, it's in this business. In the, it's really about you have to publish to, to achieve scientific credibility and, and, you know, make discoveries or, you know, publicize, communicate your discoveries. Um, 
But the other part of it is you have to fund that work, right? I mean, you know, money doesn't grow on trees, and somebody's got to pay for the science. So, so is that so fundraising is it, a big part. Of is it. that like fundraising for a startup, but it's different? Or? It's different. You know, it's different. Yeah, as you know, like uh, the fundraising for a startup, you don't you re- usually write like a twenty or fifty page written proposal, right? It's more of the you know roadshow and other supporting documentation um, pitches. Um, on the science side, it's more about ri- usually written proposals where you really lay out all the science and the hypothesis and the experimental plans. You know, it's kind of like an execution, scientific execution mm-hmm. plan. It's it's different. It's the fundraising. It's you know you have to raise the money to do what you want um, scientifically, but it's uh, it's done in a different, very different process. Um, and so, anyhow, I uh, buckled down, got you know did well enough as a postdoc to end up getting my first faculty position at Oregon State University and there I was because when you when you're running your own lab you're basically you're running your own little kingdom and you pursue your own scientific interests whether right or wrong or for good or for bad I mean that's the idea so where do you get the inspiration what's the pressure that gives you the inspiration for your scientific interest is it you have some blinding flash of the obvious where God like inserts it in your brain or that are you seeing something in the market yeah. or what's, that hasn't what happened is, yet uh, it's a combination for me you know I can't only speak for myself there's a combination of things I uh, part of what you have to do as a scientist is kind of constant surveillance of the literature and you know the new findings discoveries in your field the hot air hot topics hot areas so in that way, you know, you, you kind of you know where the science is going, what technologies are available to tackle your problems, things like that. So it's, you know, it's like putting your finger in the wind and, you know, sensing the direction. Um, and you're in a multidiscipline. So. You, you've both you've done immunotherapy or immuno, uh, uh, human-based, uh, I yeah, assume. Right. So yeah. SOC, but on SOC side was ag. You, yes. You saw the... Right sort of rapidly changing application of genomics really mm-hmm. coming from sort of the science, pure science phase to applied. Is that fair? Or are you probably uh, still... Well, you know, it was, I would say it was not really pure science to applied, but the widespread application. You know, like genomics going from being a very esoteric thing where the only places doing genomics were uh, gigantic, you know, mega sequencing centers like, you know, here in St. Louis at Washington yeah. University, you know, where it was like an industrialized thing to, you know, nowadays, you know, and even like, you know, now it must be about 10 years ago when you could start, you know, buying a sequencer for your lab, you know, that kind of thing. And and it, that was, it was democratized. When did you buy your first sequencer? Was that um, like, a, did you have a party that day? Or was that sort of a, or did no, it just no. sort of arrive? So, it's well, like, oh, here's a sequencer. I didn't buy it myself. This was at Oregon State University. And with the leadership of Jim Carrington, who's now the president of the Danforth Plant Science Center, we were one of the first groups to buy a uh, an Illumina se- uh, sequencing machine. You know, Illumina was the company that. How much did changed. it cost at the time? I, th- I think it was like eight hundred thousand dollars. And when was something it? like that? This was um, two thousand and six, maybe. No, it was and what a little does that bit cost later today? That, probably two thousand and eight. Um, well, and let me just finish. In like six of us chipped in, we pooled our resources they, to, your labs to, buy, to yeah. buy it. Um, but nowadays, I mean, you you could get a machine that has equivalent sequencing capacity, probably for hundred thousand um, dollars. And, and what did and that it's cost? Dramatic, and the ones nowadays are dramatically smaller easier to use and everything and what did that cost like in 97 
you know, it wasn't even, the technology didn't even exist. I mean, in the sense that the sequencing technologies were radically different. It was uh, 200 people know, in a lab pulling films and... Pull, yeah, you know, <laughs> gel images and, and manually scoring the bases. And, uh, you know, it's order many, many orders of magnitude, less throughput, and in, in, um, uh, and the costs were many, many orders of magnitude higher. You know, to give you an idea, that the, so the first plant genome project that my lab uh, kind of like co-led, um, the total, it, it cost probably about $6 million to sequence the genome. And right now, I could sequence that genome for maybe two hundred dollars. I mean, really, it's the, the it's just unbelievable the the how this tech in less than a decade the technology has changed everything. So as you compare yourself to your peers, because you know they're not really being entrepreneurs. Some of them are. I mean, the the, the sug the amount of PhDs that walk in our door leading entrepreneurial activities is small. <laughs> um, what, what in your background do you credit with making you more entrepreneurial? It's a great question, and I don't, I don't know. It's just a personality thing. I mean, maybe it's like, you know, definitely part of me is like ADHD, and I, I have lots of interests, and... and want to pursue them and, and have trouble like, you know, just shelving something and not pursuing it. Um, I'm okay. I'm willing. So to ADHD is a feature, not a bug. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> you know, are you ever so on red traits, <laughs> traits are all, uh, just like in plants, uh, <laughs> traits are in people are, are relative to the environment, you know? And then, um, so, uh, being able to like you know task switch and or multitask and and or you know jump from radically different things like giving an academic talk one day and you know then jumping on the plane and then giving a ag biotech pitch for a startup I mean that to me that's fun I mean this is some of the it doesn't create fun. stress you just naturally it, shift gears it's well it's always a little bit stressful but I somehow figured out how to just switch gears and to, you have to think a little bit differently you know like a lot of times. On the, I find on the kind of on the entrepreneurial side, you know, you, you that there has to be a, a for something to you know be legitimate scientifically, um, you know, good scientific grounding. But you know, the people you're talking to, you know, investors, they're they're not going to want to go get down into the incredibly deep weeds. Um, so you have to talk about the science at a different level. For example, than if I was giving a presentation at a university, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a di different audience, different. Um, language, different approach, and I'm not claiming any kind of expertise at it. But I've. Well, has there ever been a, a time where you've sort of said, you know, to do this sequencing or to think about this plant differently? What I learned detailing cars <laughs> gives me this insight. I mean, is there any of that kind of multimodal kind of fusion that's going on in your brain that is? Uh, you know, Have all those experiences contributed in some way, or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, not not like that. That was a good, funny <laughs> example, but not like that. Um, but there's just a huge amount of crossover. So you know, there are things, for example, that my lab has been pr pursuing. This I'm talking about the, at the Danforth, um, in 
what's called field phenotyping or remote sensing of uh, characterizing plants using remote sensing technologies um, that we're doing on the academic side and working with, you know, people who are like leading the charge in those, those areas, which are kind of, you know, new research areas in the plant field where the, I see the, you know, immediately can see the crossover and benefit to Benson Hill or to New Leaf Symbiotics. So uh, just to step this through this, yeah. so by gathering information in the field as the plants are growing and that environment, you can bring that back in to the breeding and gene editing process. Exactly. To steer the optimization of a, of a crop. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and that, is that new thinking or is that, well, I mean, is it, are you, if you get up and stand up and tell mm -hmm. people this, is it, oh yeah, obviously, or do they sit there and they uh, say, you know, it's one of these things. It's like hindsight is 2020, you know, everybody ever for, you know, many decades, we've recognized that in any organism, not just, you know, plants like I work on, but, uh, traits are the manifestation of the, you know, the information encoded in the genome. So genes, mm -hmm. the DNA and how they interact with the environment. And this is, you know, this has been well known. It's not, you know, that concept is not, you know, rocket science by itself. But it's only recently do we have the capability to, for example, characterize the entire genome and the differences between varieties or individuals at a single base resolution. So you can understand, like, you know, we can sequence my, my genome and your genome and understand every single base difference and how they might theoretically affect the genes same time because of developments in imaging and optics and sensor technologies and then all the computational uh, pro uh, processes needed to uh, make sense of those data we can characterize plants in exquisite detail so you know you could like scan a plant with various sensors every single day and and have uh, temporal resolution and spatial resolution and information that you know, breeders never even dreamed of in the past because it was just effectively impossible. And then we can have what's called like envirotyping information, super precise, high-resolution data about the environment that the organism is growing in. And so this is still an emerging field, but when you start bringing all those pieces together, it can, and my, my belief is that's how we're going to engineer the next generation of crops and engineer and or, you know, optimize breed by traditional combination of genomics and traditional breeding and genome editing or GM, GMO technologies. Um, it's going to be because of that, that kind of con convergence of understanding the genome, understanding the plant development and physiology, and understanding the environment. So is that something like, I'm going to make this up, that you know, for 30 days, it's okay if it has light water, but in, in like 10 days, if it has more water at this particular phase, it's going to increase its yield by 10% or is it? Yeah, I mean, that, that I mean, could be, a, that could be an example. And, but we don't if, know that. If, if we se. don't, if nobody's looked for that, nobody for a particular crop, we might not understand that. You know, like, uh, it's, there are things really basic, uh, things that we're just figuring out now or just people are just doing the studies to understand so for example like the in the field the growth rate of differences uh, the differences in growth rates between different varieties of sorghum with one day resolution or you know 
hour level type resolution. And is that the type of resolution? It's like day, hour, not minute, second? Yeah, day, day hour. Um, just because, you know, the logistics of doing all the sensing over the, yeah. it takes time to scan a field. Um, but this is information that, you know, just because it was impractical to ever gather in some cases, just because either the technology didn't exist or it was too expensive or too cumbersome or whatever. And so these kinds of things are now becoming routine. It's, it's almost like the example I used earlier, you know, uh, 15 years ago, it cost millions of dollars to sequence a genome. No, you know, no regular scientist had access to the technology. Well, now, you know, the world's changed. And, you know, you could, you could go buy an aluminum machine and put it on your desk if you just felt like it. You know? <laughs> and and uh, um, so I we'll think... We'll have to look up the price some, on that yeah, idea. Yeah. <laughs> In some other, you know, these other fields like... I do have an oscilloscope at home, but uh, not, not a <laughs> yeah, okay. genome sequencing machine. <laughs> so um, I think it, it's akin to that in that there's all these technology developments around sensing and characterizing plants and... Um, with resolutions that were or are unprecedented that now are becoming available and routine. And so, and then what will happen next? If you're, if you're doing that field data, is there another so, thing beyond that? Or do you think the field data is another 30 years of, of effort to understand its, its impact on a crop? So did you say 30 years? 30 or, years. No, I, I think it's a matter of, you know, five years or something like that. But you'll I mean, be able to run the There's going to be the acceleration. Is I mean, I, if we just look at genomes, they really, the effort around genome probably started warming up in the late 80s, became yeah. mainstay, late 90s, late 90s, and is now practical enough to be part of an engineering suite. Yeah. So you got like 25, 30 years of life cycle on that. Yeah, I, th I think that because... Um, a lot of these technologies that I'm talking about that are being applied on, in plant science, they're pre-existing technologies. I mean, you know, like hyperspectral imaging has been around for a yeah. long time. You know, it's, of course, being miniaturized and made cheaper and, you know, better and all that. Um, so it's really where uh, technologies that exist in most cases are being applied to crop plants in new ways. And so um, some of that development cycle you know, you don't need somebody to come up with a radical new way to sequence. You know, mm -hmm. that's um, it's really the the bigger bottleneck. I mean, there is a there are some bottlenecks, and you know, some of the bottlenecks we're seeing are on the computational side. You know, extracting the the nuggets of information, or think of it like the needles in the haystack, out of these large sensory data sets. You know, to 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 try to find what are called you know called features in the data that are correlated with traits you're interested in, like, you know, yield, for example, the, mm -hmm. you know, probably the most important trait, but, uh, and all the components of yield are other important aspects of, or traits of plants. And so what's next, what, well, so in the execution of that, will that give us 5% better yield, 10% better yield? Is there, is there sort of a, a peaking out that you think a natural limit yeah. to, what the yield can be on corn other than 100 or <laughs> well, you know i'm gonna get the the exact number wrong here i think but you know if you look at uh crop plants like you know soybean or sorghum or corn that's grown under like absolutely optimal ideal conditions like you know no stress and perfect uh, uh no nutri nutrient limitations you know perfect environment all that the yields are 
dramatically higher, like double the what you know of like the average corn yield is, for example. Um, and so the, that yield potential is there's a it's not like you know five percent more, ten percent. There's mm-hmm. enormous yield potential um, to be captured. And then I guess the other aspect of, the, of your question is, you know, like uh, small increments of improvement are meaningful. You know, like, you know, the, if you look at like the steady rate of genetic improvement, you know, the rate of genetic gain in big crops, you know, it averages out to like, you know, one or less than 2% per year, you know, and that's meaningful, right? If you compare corn yields from 40 years ago and today, I mean, that, that slow uh, progression One or 2% is, per year is, is a good, yeah, it's means great. a lot. Um, in other contexts, like, you know, companies may not be interested in trying to commercialize something that's only going to give you a, a, a small bump, right? They're looking for step function type bumps, like, you know, 8 or 10% or something like that. Um, so I think it's all context dependent, but, uh, and I can't, pre- I can't predict what, you know, what the outcome is going to be, but I, I, you know, you know, a lot of other people, you know, the market kind of shows this, you know, with all the, the ag, what's going on in ag biotech and the new startups that are popping up. People believe that yeah, there's more to be extra potential to be extracted. And, and so, what do you think comes next after that? You've you've we've done the genome. We know how to do gene editing, or maybe we don't. Maybe we're getting there, and then we're monitor the fields. What's next? Hmm. Well, that's a that's a good question. Uh, some of what's next is the integration. So. You know, the, the solution for a particular crop isn't going to just be genome editing or traditional breeding, you know, or gene, it's going to be bringing these things all together. You know, so we're, for example, if you could use genome editing to kind of, you know, add, you know, a handful of desirable missing traits from the elite, you know, your, your elite uh, breeding materials. Um, uh, and then bring some traits in by GM. So it's really like, you know, a product like, you know, an iPhone or whatever. That's a, an assemblage of a bunch of, you mm-hmm. know, great features and traits. Um, there's that. I think bringing these technologies, this is, I think, part of the democratization of the process is bringing all of these technologies to other crops. You know, like in at least in the in the U.S., um, the in the last, you know, 30 plus years corn and soy have probably gotten the you know lion's share of the effort and by that what do you mean like 80 percent 90 percent i can't even hazard a guess but uh, it'd probably be 90 percent something on that you know, something like that i mean we're, so we've put all you know, of our like, attention on the yeah on a, the on two big kids in town but we haven't ma- focused on anybody yeah, else big massive acreage crops that are really valuable it totally makes sense you know that's where the economics are um but these technologies can be applied to other crop systems and now that they're you know cheaper better and all that you know it's going to be a faster process you know like, like here's a uh, i'm kind of jumping here but here's an example you know we you know i talked earlier about you know corn just let's just say it's been domesticated for you know roughly ten thousand years or whatever mm-hmm. that was how long pe- it's been long so, time long time it, people have been in other crops people have been improving them you know through traditional breeding in one form or another for thousands of years well, if somebody wants to try to create a new crop today from some wild species, it's, it doesn't have to take 10,000 years. Yeah. Because we can apply all these technologies and just and leapfrog it really fast. I mean, you know, maybe maybe you could, uh, you know, essentially domesticate a new species in a decade or two. 
now. So there's uh, many opportunities there. You know, so it's sort of like when the iPhone first came out, it had email, but now it's got 40,000 apps. So there's once we sort of unlock yeah. the capability, the entrepreneurs will unleash everything else. Exactly. Um, so I think that's that's an area where you know te these technologies will just be applied to more and more crops and for different purposes. You know, like we, uh, um, some of the examples you and I talked about earlier. You know, where it's uh, specialty products, for example, or chemicals made. You know, in plants. Uh, so by bi like we were talking about um, cultivate, making rubber from dandelions. Right. Exactly. That that's an example where you know essentially uh, uh, the crop is an engine for an industrial application. Yep. You know, and it's uh, driven by the accessibility of new technologies. And could you ever make a winter corn? Will you yeah. ever be able to engineer it that far? <laughs> um, that the you that mean it would grow through the winter? Would grow through the winter? No, well, is that maybe maybe that would be a stretch? But I won't say anything's impossible with science. Um, that's very interesting. I uh, and so what's your next? What's next on your ADD list? I have a few, a few things I'm interested in. Um, so uh, I mentioned earlier this concept of, uh, it's called envirotyping, which is uh, having, acquiring, and analyzing, understanding very high resolution, essentially environmental data. So uh, um, I'm working with a colleague at the Danforth and thinking about a, a startup company uh, in that area. So imagine uh, sensors that would be in like every breeding plot in a crop improvement, you know, platform, um, providing that key piece of information, um, how the uh, the the genetics of the the of a variety interacts with the environment to give you the phenotype, which is mm -hmm. the you know, for example, yield. Um, so that's one area that I'm I'm very interested in. Um, I am also uh, working with some other colleagues on a, on a concept for uh, uh, another ag. A biotech uh, type of uh, uh, company, you know, a, a seed company idea in the sorghum space. Um, so sorghum is a very, very interesting crop that's kind of uh, been very dear to me the last several years. Uh, um, it's a in the U.S. It's you know it's a it's an important crop, but a, a relatively low acreage and mainly um, used for feed. But in other parts of the world, like the develop, areas of the developing world, it's a staple food crop. And it's, a, it's really a fascinating plant in that it has tremendous native stress tolerance. So um, drought tolerance, heat tolerance, that's just amazing. I mean, it makes corn look kind of pathetic under those kind of conditions. <laughs> um, so those are a couple of the, the things I've been thinking about. Um, I'm you know very interested in, we talked about this, the... Uh, um, the remote kind of this idea of applying remote sensing to plants. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a, a place where there's a lot of crossover from my academic work. You know, we have uh, some really big projects where we're using, you know, these remote sensing technologies to characterize plants in the field and also in controlled environments like growth chambers and greenhouses. Um, getting that, that kind of information in fully integrated along with the genomics in the crop improvement process is that's just a general goal of mine you know and that's going to probably push forward you know both on the entrepreneurial side and on the academic research side oh great um well thank you for your time i i want to be sure that you're going to come back again because i want to keep seeing this evolution 
um, we're certainly interested in all these different angles. Uh, and give some more thought to the how you end up being both an entrepreneur and a scientist, because I think in the future mm-hmm. conversations, we want to sort of people are fascinated by that type of thing, and it's an intriguing challenge about how we get more entrepreneurs to help grow things. But uh, really yeah. appreciate the work you're doing, and and thank you for for well, being on the show with us. Thank you for for having me, and thanks for the the great questions and uh, yeah, the fun time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Innovation Anarchy. To subscribe, go to iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for more conversations about venture, innovation, and entrepreneurship.